everyone, and welcome to my podcast today. This is Unknown Friends, where I review the books I'm currently reading, and I'm your host, Rochelle Ferguson. I'm back today after a week of vacation. Thank you so much for being patient during my week off. My sister and brand new brother-in-law were visiting from the United Kingdom, and so I got to take some time off to hang out with them and my parents last week. We had a great time and were truly able to relax. And so I'm coming back to the podcast this week, reinvigorated and excited to get back to a new book review this week. As promised two weeks ago in my last episode, episode 17, today I will be reviewing a rather obscure work by the great British author G.K. Chesterton. I'm discussing his short story collection titled The Poet and the Lunatics. Now, some of Chesterton's most famous stories are his Father Brown mysteries, but you may not know, as I didn't until fairly recently, that he wrote and published several other collections of short detective stories not involving his character Father Brown. The Poet and the Lunatics is one such collection, but he published several others as well, each with its own new detective. Among these collections of mystery stories are The Man Who Knew Too Much, The Club of Queer Trades, The Paradoxes of Mr. Pond, and Four Faultless Felons. I have not yet read any of these others, but I'm very curious to since I, I love Father Brown and I greatly enjoyed The Poet and the Lunatics as well, featuring Chesterton's uh, poet slash detective, Gabriel Gale. But let's talk about G.K. himself for a couple minutes. Gilbert Keith Chesterton. He is so fun to talk about and to read. He was a British author, of course, and he was born in 1874. He lived to be 62 years old. He died in 1936 from heart failure. For much of his life, he was an Anglican, but converted to Catholicism in 1922, I believe. His Christianity is um, integral to his writing, as you'll know if you've read anything by him. Now, Chesterton was born and raised in London. He and his brother went to school in London, um, but he never earned a college degree, although he studied at art school for a while. He was artistically gifted and originally saw himself becoming an illustrator. But soon after leaving college without finishing his degree, he embarked on a journalism career and writing soon took over his life. But he always loved art. He was an art and literary critic throughout his life. And you notice in his writing, his style is characterized by the use of vivid, concrete images and visual symbolism. Now, in 1901, he married a young woman named Frances, who, as it turns out, was also a writer and provided tireless support to Chesterton in his work. And her Christian faith also inspired and strengthened Chesterton's faith. The couple wanted children, but they were never able to have any of their own. And perhaps partially due to that, Frances in her writing seems quite often drawn to Christmas themes, 
um, and the birth of Jesus. She actually wrote yearly Christmas poems for the Christmas cards she and her husband would send out each year. And really, she had to be quite a strong woman, uh, not just to take care of her absent-minded husband, but also to overcome the, the struggles she faced, such as being childless. This was not easy for the Chestertons, but they supported one another and they found comfort and strength in their faith. And of course, their marriage lasted their whole lives, and Frances passed away in 1938, just two years after her husband died. Now, somewhat in contrast to his wife's writing, G.K. Chesterton's work was uh, vast and varied. He considered himself primarily a journalist, um, and he wrote literally thousands of essays, ranging from social criticism to literary criticism uh, to theology and apologetics and more. But throughout his lifetime, he also wrote something like a hundred books, as well as hundreds of poems and short stories, and five plays and five novels. Some of his best-known works are, as I already mentioned, his Father Brown Mysteries, along with his novel, The Man Who Was Thursday, and his nonfiction works, Orthodoxy and The Everlasting Man. Personally, I've read more of his fiction than his nonfiction, but I love everything of his that I've encountered, including some of his essays. He's also extremely quotable, so even if you've never read any of his books, you may well have run across some of his uh, little paradoxical uh, sound bites. He's witty and profound and can give you something to mull over for quite a while in just a single sentence. Anyway, in high school, I read and reread his novels, The Man Who Was Thursday and Man Alive, which was a favorite of mine for several years. Um, and then I also read most of his Father Brown stories. Now, just a couple of details about Chesterton's personality, because he was quite a personality. If I could go back in time and have lunch with any author I chose, I might just pick Chesterton because he sounds delightful. The problem with that would be he would most likely miss our lunch appointment because, as I already mentioned, he was extremely absent-minded. You may have heard before stories about how he would lose track of where he was going and would send a telegram to his wife telling her where he was and asking where he ought to be. Um, and it sometimes said that he did much of his writing in train stations because he usually missed whatever train he was supposed to catch. He, he is also remembered for his unique appearance. He was six feet four inches tall and weighed nearly 300 pounds. And he usually wore a cape and carried a sword stick. But his size is perhaps the most famous um, aspect of his appearance. There's a well-known story about a woman who approached him during World War I and indignantly asked him why he wasn't out at the front. To which he replied, if you go round to the side, you will see that I am. <laughs> also, P.G. Woodhouse, uh, the, the British humorist I discussed a couple weeks ago in episode 15, one time he described a loud crash as a sound like G.K. Chesterton falling onto a sheet of tin. 
which is now one of my favorite Woodhouse quotes. So yeah, long story short, G.K. Chesterton is a favorite author of mine, almost up there with C.S. Lewis. Uh, I've not read as much Chesterton as I have Lewis, but of course Chesterton's writings influenced C.S. Lewis, so there is definitely um, a connection there. But Chesterton is unique. He's difficult to categorize because he is so outside the box. In many ways, he's very orthodox um, in the sense that he's, you know, staunchly Christian and in many senses old-fashioned. And yet at the same time, he's somehow radical, or at least his words sound radical because he turns ideas inside out and makes old ideas look new. He's a, he's a revolutionary traditionalist. <laughs> he's also been called the Prince of Paradox. Uh, which starts to make sense the more familiar you get with his writing. It has also been said that you have to read a work by Chesterton multiple times before you can wrap your head around it, which I can attest to in my experience. Although I think his shorter works are more accessible, which may be one reason why his Father Brown mysteries are so popular. But in general, I think it's true that he's such a deep thinker um, and has such an original uh, often startling way of expressing himself that he takes some getting used to. Um, and it does often require a reread or two before I start to really understand what he's communicating. The poet and the lunatics, however, like the Father Brown story collections, is a bit more approachable than his weightier works like Orthodoxy, um, or even his more difficult fiction like The Man Who Was Thursday. So The Poet and the Lunatics is a collection of just eight short stories, each revolving around a crime committed or contemplated by a madman of some kind, or seeming madman. And one of the central questions of this collection is how to understand reason and madness, how to tell the difference between apparent and real insanity. Gabriel Gale, our uh, poet slash artist slash detective, is the hero of these stories who solves or occasionally prevents crimes um, like murder or suicide, and yet Gale himself sometimes appears to be a little mad. And so Chesterton challenges our presuppositions about rationality and faith and human life in general, ultimately turning many widely accepted notions on their head. And in fact, quite literally, Gale stands on his head at one point in the opening short story, claiming that he can get a better view of the world from that position. So Chesterton turns some of our ideas about the world upside down, and in doing so, he shows that he's actually turned them right side up. Uh, it's, it's certainly thought-provoking. So about Gabriel Gale himself, our detective, the stories of the poet and the lunatics are very reminiscent of Father Brown, but also of Chesterton's novel Man Alive. And I think you could almost say that Gabriel Gale is a kind of cross between Father Brown, the spiritual detective, and Innocent Smith, the uh, the remarkable hero of Man Alive. 
Gale is like Father Brown in the sense that he does his detective work by using observation skills, yes, but far more by understanding the minds of the people he's dealing with, the minds of criminals, or more simply, the minds of sinners. Gale says he can follow their irrational train of thought in some sense because he himself has been through most forms of irrationality or insanity. And once we talk a bit more about what he means by insanity, I hope that will make a little more sense. He says in one of the stories, that is the only use I am in the world, having been every kind of idiot. So instead of being primarily an observational detective like Sherlock Holmes, he is a psychological detective like Father Brown. But Gale also reminds me of Innocent Smith from Man Alive in that he sometimes seems mad himself, but he's actually the sanest person around. And this is part of Chesterton's effort to shake us up and help us see reality straight on for what it is, to see it new. Because so many of our ideas about reality are skewed, he has to surprise us by tilting our vision so that we're actually squared up to see reality accurately for the first time. And so Gale's strange behavior, everything from standing on his head to things as wild as uh, chasing a man around a garden in a thunderstorm, brandishing a pitchfork. Yes, Gale does this in one story. But these things that appear insane, Chesterton unfolds to show us the context and the meaning behind them, and we come to realize how thoroughly rational Gale is, and how well he understands and serves others. He even saves them from ruin sometimes. Now, I should clarify, if you're familiar with Chesterton's novel, The Man Who Was Thursday, this Gabriel Gale is not the same as Gabriel Syme, the hero of that earlier work. They're two separate characters and not at all connected as far as I'm aware. Maybe there's some uh, symbolic association between the two, but I think it's more likely that Chesterton just liked the name Gabriel. But I wanted to make that clear. I went into the poet and the lunatics at first thinking they were the same character, and that confused me until I figured it out. So I uh, just want to help others avoid that misunderstanding. So as far as this story collection as a whole, I don't think I've mentioned it yet. It was published fairly late in G.K. Chesterton's writing career in 1929, just seven years before his death. And while it consists of eight distinct stories, the tales, of course, are connected by the character of Gabriel Gale, and there is some sense of an overarching narrative from beginning to end, or at least a, a kind of um, direction to Gale's life that's continuing alongside these eight mysteries he solves. Actually, the book's subtitle is Episodes in the Life of Gabriel Gale. I guess the middle six stories are less clearly uh, tied together, but the first and last stories clearly bookend the collection. So Gale meets someone in the opening story, a lady, uh, whom he obscurely references a time or two throughout the collection, but she herself isn't present again until the last story, 
when they meet a second time and we get kind of an explanation of Gail's strange life up to that point and a hint about his future direction. <laughs> Am I being vague enough? Uh, yeah, you get the picture. There's, there's a gentle uh, romance narrative shaping the work as a whole. So just a few more specifics about the mysteries themselves um, and the themes that Chesterton is exploring. The very first story I struggled to get interested in um, or even really comprehend at first, but that might be in part because I didn't read the whole story in one sitting, uh, which wasn't too smart. The second story I thought was easier and it conveyed concepts I could latch onto without too much difficulty. So the second story is called The Yellow Bird, and the form of insanity Gail confronts in this mystery is a man so obsessed with liberty that he loses touch with reality, with rationality. This man is mad. He has abandoned the balance of reason in that he believes liberty to be freedom from any and all borders or restraints. And it takes Gale's insight to discern the signs of this madness and understand what it will lead to. And he has to act quickly to prevent the madman's irrationality from destroying those around him as well as himself. And so, and this applies to each story in the book, Gale faces a situation, either a crime has been committed or there's one looming, and not only does Gale solve the mystery and identify the true criminal or lunatic, but we also get Gale's uh, philosophical or psychological analysis of the situation. He shows us the surprising reality about whatever irrational belief has taken over the criminal's mind. And he responds to it with reason and truth and teaches us about ourselves in the process. So in The Yellow Bird, for instance, he explains that truly liberty is not freedom from all boundaries, but he calls it the power of a thing to be itself, to exist as it was created to exist. And that itself is a boundary. In being ourselves, we can't be anything we might wish to be or believe ourselves to be, but only what we are, which is human. <laughs> and if we accept our place in the cosmos, complete with its limitations, and fulfill our purpose there, that's when we experience true liberty. Anyway, I, I can't explain Chesterton's ideas nearly as well as he himself does, so I shouldn't try. But um, that's my feeble attempt at summing up the concept he's exploring just in that second story, The Yellow Bird. And in each story, he gets that deep or deeper, and he gives his reader not just an intriguing mystery, but thought-provoking ideas about what it means to be human. So to wrap up the episode and try to do this story collection justice, I actually want to read you a fairly long quotation from one of the stories. It's almost two paragraphs, but I think it's worth it. I don't usually read a passage this long, but Chesterton is just one of those writers whom it's difficult, if not impossible, to paraphrase or summarize adequately. He's 
so unique and such an excellent writer that you can't really say what he's saying in any other words than the words he chose. So, so I want to let him speak for himself. This passage comes from the fourth story called The Crime of Gabriel Gale, interestingly. And Gale has been dealing with a man who essentially is on the verge of believing that he is God. And this is how Gale describes the lunacy of believing oneself to be in control of the universe. He says, The worst and most miserable sort of idiot is he who seems to create and contain all things. Man is a creature. All his happiness consists in being a creature. Or, as the great voice commanded us, in becoming a child. All his fun is in having a gift or present, which the child with profound understanding values because it is a surprise. But surprise implies that a thing comes from outside ourselves, and gratitude that it comes from someone other than ourselves. It is thrust through the letterbox, it is thrown in at the window, it is thrown over the wall. Those limits are the lines of the very plan of human pleasure. I also dreamed that I had dreamed of the whole creation. I had given myself the stars for a gift. I had handed myself the sun and moon. I had been behind and at the beginning of all things, and without me nothing was made that was made. Anybody who has been in that center of the cosmos knows that it is to be in hell. And there is only one cure for it. Oh, I know that people have written all kinds of cant and false comfort about the cause of evil, and of why there is pain in the world. But for all that, this truth is true, objectively and experimentally true. There is no cure for that nightmare of omnipotence except pain, because that is the thing a man knows he would not tolerate if he could really control it. A man must be in some place from which he would certainly escape if he could, if he is really to realize that all things do not come from within. The Nightmare of Omnipotence <laughs> That's what Chesterton calls the lunacy of believing I am the center of the universe. Limitations, those are the lines of the very plan of human pleasure. He was a wise man and a powerful writer. So if you're already a fan of Chesterton but haven't read The Poet and the Lunatics, I commend this collection to you as a worthwhile addition to your Chesterton repertoire. And if you've not encountered Chesterton's fiction yet, honestly this wouldn't be a bad place to start. Father Brown is probably a more common starting place, and I think those stories are a great introduction to Chesterton, but The Poet and the Lunatics is in the same vein and would be a pretty accessible entry point as well. It's not too long of a work, either. Um, my edition, at least, which is a 2010 reprint, is only about 150 pages. Now, whether or not you've read The Poet and the Lunatics specifically, let's continue this conversation. 
I find Chesterton's mind so fascinating. I would thoroughly enjoy discussing him with you individually if you've read any of his works and are up for a chat. Feel free to message me with any thoughts or questions via Facebook or Instagram, and I would love to hear your perspective on his writing and way of thinking. Lastly, to give you a heads up about what's in store next week, in episode 19, I plan to review a work unlike anything I've reviewed so far on the podcast. We will be covering The Space Merchants, which is a science fiction novel written by two authors working together in the mid-1900s, Frederick Pohl and Cyril Kornbluth. I hope I'm pronouncing their names right. This is an intriguing work and holds a place as, uh, I suppose, a minor classic in the science fiction genre. So come back next week if you're curious about The Space Merchants, and I hope you'll find my review helpful and interesting. Till then, thank you so much for listening, and have a wonderful week.